By way of review, we saw last week that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Therefore, he must go to Jerusalem uh, to die there on behalf of all who are to trust in him at the time of this upcoming Passover. This is going to be the last Passover of his life. And because he's the Passover lamb, as we saw last week, he must be in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover to die there, according to the prophecies of the Old Testament, according to the nature of his work. He is going to die like the original Passover lamb did on behalf of many people. And whoever by faith takes his blood, as it were, and applies it to the doorposts of their houses, God will pass over when he visits his wrath, when he visits his judgment upon this world because of sin. That is the nature of Christ's work. And so at this upcoming Passover, most likely the third one of his ministry, this is the last one he's going to Jerusalem to die. This gives the sense of chapter 12 and verse 1 then, where it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. When you see the therefore, you've got to ask, what is therefore? And that's, that's what that therefore is there for. It's because the Passover is coming, therefore Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die as the Passover lamb. Jesus had been laying low. I'm not going to say hiding because he wasn't scared. Remember, Jesus embraced the cross. Jesus laid down his life freely. No one took it from him. So I'm not going to say Jesus was hiding, but he had withdrawn into obscurity. Chapter 11 and verse 54 tells us, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So from the time that they made plans to put him to death in John 11:53, Jesus withdrew into obscurity for a time, to lay low until the time was right until the Passover feast should come, where he, the Passover lamb, was going to lay down his life. The time is drawing nigh. It's now six days before the Passover, and Jesus, therefore, comes to Bethany, which, again, was two miles outside Jerusalem, so about the distance from here to Shephat Wildi. So Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem now, and he's going to be near Jerusalem for this last week of his earthly life and ministry. But he is on his way to die. He's said as much at various times in his earthly ministry. He's predicted his own death and resurrection. Uh, He has uh, been called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is fulfilling all of the prophecies uh, concerning the Old Testament Messiah. And so there were those with eyes to see and ears to hear who understood the nature of what he was about to do. Mary was one of them. She knows that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And the reality of Jesus' impending death prompts the act of love that we see here at the beginning of John chapter 12. More on that later. We're going to circle back around to it. But let's consider first, as it's important to rightly understand the passage, let's consider first 
the implied duty of Christians in this passage to care for the poor. Christians really ought to care for the poor. Yes, there are principles about how we ought to care for the poor, principles that should guide us as we think about how we ought to care for the poor. And in this context, when I say the poor, I mean the materially poor. I'm not going to qualify it every time, but that's what I mean. There are principles, there are parameters within which we are to care for the poor, parameters outside which we are not to stray. There is guidance given us in the scripture as to how we are to help the poor. For example, one of the principles that guides us in caring for the poor is that we ought to prioritize God's people. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So it doesn't say you only help the Christian poor, but it does say you especially help the Christian poor. And this raises the idea of moral proximity. So in every age, there have been we could say something like concentric circles around every individual, every family unit, every local church, um, where there are those in the closest concentric circle to whom we stand in the strongest moral proximity. In other words, let's say, for example, if my own brother was materially poor, I would stand in closer moral proximity to him than any of you would. Let's say if someone in here was in a bad spot financially, we as a church would stand in closer proximity to that person than, say, another Baptist church up in St. Thomas would stand to that person. And so the scripture gives us this principle that there is a concept of moral proximity. Who are we especially to focus on? Who are we especially responsible to aid and to help? That's one principle. Another would be that we are to exercise prudent versus indiscriminate charity. So there there is that passage where Jesus says, give to everyone who asks of you. Some take that quite literally and just literally always give to literally everyone who asks of them. But we do see limitations on that principle elsewhere in Scripture. And so it's always good to read the Scripture as a whole and to let Scripture inform other scriptures so that we get the proper sense of it. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 says this, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now this obviously doesn't, wouldn't apply to, for example, a disabled person that's not able to work or something like this. But there is this principle in which able-bodied men are not to be living off the handouts of others. And so we ought to take that principle into account as we think through charity, that we're not here mainly to help able-bodied young men freeload off society. That's not really a right goal or strategy of the kind of charity that we are to do. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, I won't read the whole thing, but it starts like this, honor widows who are truly widows. And honor, in this case, means help them financially. And it it talks about how first, um, 
If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. So what Paul is doing as he instructs the pastor, Timothy, is he's saying, actually, the biological family of the church members in need stand in closer moral proximity to that person than the church as a whole does. And so if their family is able to help them out, let them help them out. And only then, if not, then let's activate the church's benevolence. But he goes on and he gives further instructions here. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, etc., etc., my point this morning is not to exposit that passage and explain why he gives all of these various instructions. My point is simply that there are limitations here, obviously, in terms of how the church exercises charity towards those who are ostensibly in need. There are limitations that the apostle places on the church's um, exercise of benevolent ministry. And so we are to think through how do we do prudent charity work? And we don't just do absolutely indiscriminate charity work. So when Jesus says, give to everyone who asks of you, he's speaking about our disposition and uh, our, our generosity and our intention and our willingness to help, um, as opposed to literally giving an instruction that you don't even just shut your mind off. Don't think about whether it's prudent don't think about who's the beneficiary. Don't think about what would ultimately help them. Just give, 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 give. That's not the sense of what Jesus is saying. So yes, there are limitations. There are principles. There are parameters for Christians as we care for the poor. But listen here. There is an unmistakable imperative for Christians to care for the poor. You can't read the Bible honestly and sincerely and impartially and not come away with that. Now, this is not the main point of today's message, so I won't belabor it. But here's a sampling of verses to substantiate what I'm saying. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. Now, this is obviously written to Old Testament Israel, which was a theocratic nation-state. But it was typical of what a society organized under God could be and should aspire to be in terms of justice and righteousness, etc., etc. Listen. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open up your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Then, lest someone say, well, it's still Old Testament, and I don't buy the whole typology line of argumentation. Okay, fine. Let's turn to some explicit commands from the New Testament apostles, which basically say the same kind of thing. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Or James chapter 1 and verse 27. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, this is not the main point of today's message, so I'm not going to belabor the point. Simply this, Christians do have an unmistakable duty to care for the poor. So, all of that to say, back in John chapter 12 and verse 8, when Jesus says, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me, he is not saying that care for the poor ought not to be a consideration. So, in this passage, we are told that Judas pipes up and says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, a denarius was about a day's wages. So we're talking like maybe in the neighborhood of like $25,000 or more in today's currency. This was a lot of money. And Judas says, why, why was this not sold and given to the poor? Jesus is not saying, ah, never mind the poor. Who cares about the poor? That's obviously not what Jesus is saying when we understand the general tenor of Scripture towards the plight of the poor and the responsibility of Christians to care for the poor. Jesus can't be saying, well, who cares about the poor? Don't even think about that. Why did that thought even cross your mind? Now, remember, we're told that Judas was a thief. We're told that he just wanted to help himself uh, to what was in the money bag. But the people standing around didn't know that. And so when Judas speaks up on behalf of the poor, Jesus takes it as an opportunity to teach and to instruct. And the nature of his, his instruction is not, don't think about the poor. The nature of Jesus' instruction is not, the poor don't matter. So who cares about that? Just focus on me. That's important for us to understand so that we can properly understand what this passage is saying. The main point that Jesus is making, which is the main point of this morning's sermon, is that devotion to Jesus himself is of an even higher priority than devotion to the poor. So it's not that God doesn't care about the poor. It's not that he doesn't want us to be devoted to caring for the poor. But what the point that Jesus is making in this passage is that, yes, you ought to care for the poor, but you ought to be even more devoted to me. Now, some may object here that this is a false dichotomy. Well, wait a second. You don't have to choose between being devoted to Jesus and being devoted to the poor. It's not either or, but it's both and. You can be devoted to Jesus and you can be devoted to the poor. So why are you making it seem as if we have to choose between them? That's a false dichotomy. And I would simply respond that you're right. In most cases, it is a false dichotomy. Often, it is a false dichotomy to choose between to have to choose between our devotion to Jesus and our devotion to the poor. Ordinarily, in most circumstances, we do both at the same time. In Matthew 25, 31 to 46, Jesus 
is dealing with two groups of people. And to one group of people, he says, you, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He says to the other group of people, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Now this could well be us one day standing before Christ Jesus, listening to him saying, I had all these needs and you took care of me. Or I had all these needs and you didn't take care of me. And you might be inclined to respond the same way. But wait, I, I spent my life in Barbados in the 21st century. You, you were not even walking the earth at that time. When did we see you in need? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? And how does Jesus respond to these people? He says, whatever you did or whatever you did not do, to the least of these, my brothers, you did or did not do to me. Jesus so identifies himself with his people that he interprets the way that we care for his needy people as being the way we care for he himself. And so that's an example of how we don't have to choose between devotion to Jesus and devotion to the poor. When you go minister to a sick brother or sister in Christ, when you give, as we're speaking about today, financially to a needy brother or sister in Christ, you are being devoted to the poor and to Jesus at the same time. <clears throat> in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who is commended? The guy that was on his way to the temple and didn't stop because he wanted to prioritize devotion to God over devotion to a needy person? Or the person who did stop realizing that if he was truly devoted to God, he would be devoted to this person in need? You see, again, this is an example of how they most often go together. If you love the Lord Jesus, then you love His law, and His commands are not burdensome to you. And this is His command, that we love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so you see a brother or sister in need, right? Or even, even a non-Christian in need. He's your neighbor. She's your neighbor. And out of your devotion to Jesus, you minister to that person. You give to that person. You see, the, the Scripture teaches that most often our devotion to Jesus fits together with coalesces with 
our devotion to and our care for the poor. So most often it is a false dichotomy to say that you've got to prioritize devotion to Jesus over devotion to the poor. But there are times when we must prioritize one over the other. For example, when not to do so would lead us into a wrong kind of ecumenism. So, the psalmist says, I am a companion to all who fear the Lord. And I really wish more of us Christians could quote that verse as our own, could take hold of it and own it. I am a companion to all who fear the Lord. What denomination are you part of? What, are, what do you believe about this or that? What, what distinguishes you from this Christian or that Christian? So often don't we glom onto questions like that and really accentuate the differences and really drive home the distinctions and really separate ourselves and distance ourselves and put at arm's length other brothers and sisters in Christ rather than having this spirit that I'm a companion to all who fear the Lord. Obviously, you know I'm a convinced Reformed Baptist. Our church is called Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. I was even praying earlier, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? There are pastors in this island who I would recognize as brothers and sisters in Christ, but there is a certain sense in which we couldn't lead a church together because there are real meaningful differences between us. So I'm speaking more about disposition at this point. We ought to have a disposition of love one for another, of care one for another. We ought to have a uh, disposition to highlight where we agree. What's the same about us and other true Christians than to highlight the differences? Mark Dever once said that the, the thing, singular, the thing that unites all true Christians is of far more weight than the things which distinguish us one from another. Think about that. Give some thought to that. Meditate upon that. There is one thing that unites all true Christians. And that thing is of far greater weight than the things which distinguish us one from another. So there ought to be a sense in which we really are prepared to be ecumenical, to stand together with all true Christians as fellow Christians. Doesn't mean we agree with one another about everything. Doesn't mean we're on the same page about everything. And it doesn't mean that we can't talk about those distinctions and those differences. But there ought to be a sense in which we are properly ecumenical even as we talk about those differences even as we talk about those distinctions, that we don't make them of greater weight than Christ Jesus and his gospel and his covenant, which bind us all together. So there's a right kind of ecumenism. But there is most certainly a wrong kind of ecumenism. And this is most often what we think of when we think about the word ecumenical. If you hear that there's going to be an ecumenical service anywhere in Barbados, my pastoral guidance is stay far away from it. Because you're liable to have so-called Christian church leaders there, you're liable to have 
members of the Baha'i faith, you're member, liable to have one of the Imams there, you're liable to have all kinds of different folks there, um, supposedly all just coming together to worship. To worship whom? Or what? Or according to whose prescription? This is what we most often think of when we think about ecumenical. Now, very often, we will be confronted, or, or I shouldn't say very often, from time to time, we will be confronted with supposedly Christian organizations who want us to partner with them in care for the poor when they themselves don't have a right kind of devotion to Jesus. Now, caring for the poor is a good thing, but we shouldn't just partner with other Christian organizations, supposedly Christian organizations, based on their stance towards the poor without considering what is their stance toward Christ himself. Sometimes what can happen is that we throw in our lot with an organization or with another church or with whatever for the common goal of caring for the poor. But in doing so, we actually dishonor Christ Jesus and undermine the cause of Christ in this world by lending credibility to a skewed view of Christ, a skewed picture of Christ, a distorted gospel, which really is no biblical Christ or gospel at all. And so we have cared for the poor, but we have not cared for Christ. And this ought not to be so. So that's an instance where you have to choose between being devoted to Christ or being devoted to the poor. Let me give you one more thought under that sort of idea. I would suggest that partnering with an entirely uh, secular, non-religious group would actually be better in caring for the poor than partnering with one that is supposedly Christian but distorts who Christ is and the gospel is. The reason being that nobody's going to think that an openly non-Christian group is preaching Christianity. So, for example, I would feel far more comfortable as an individual making a donation to the Rotary Club than I would to, say, for example, the Roman Catholic Little Sisters of the Poor. Because in giving to the Rotary Club, I'm literally just giving to the poor. I'm literally just giving to a philanthropic organization that wants to make Barbados better. Whereas if I give to the Roman Catholic Little Sisters of the Poor, there is that dynamic, but there's also the dynamic where they are viewed as being those who have a right view of Christ and a right view of the gospel. And I, feel like I'm, I would feel like I'm lending some credibility to their skewed and distorted view of Christ and the gospel. And so as we um, live our lives, there are times when we have to decide between our devotion to Christ and our devotion to the poor. And that's one example. Now here's another example. 
when not to do so would reduce the Christian life to mere activism. In the early 20th century, there was a strong movement towards what we, what we have called historically the social gospel. Now, I got this definition from the Oxford Dictionary, which is Christian faith practiced as a call not just to personal conversion, but to social reform. Oh, what's so, what's so bad about that? We believe that we should not only be converted, but that we should also be salt and light in society. And in fact, don't we like the word reform? <laughs> what's, so, what's so bad about this? Well, what happened was that within this movement, theological considerations became secondary. And so the ethics of Jesus came to be held very high. Well, the person of Jesus was, your views about the person of Jesus became peripheral. So in other words, well, who cares if he really rose from the dead or not? He taught us to love our neighbor. I mean, what does it matter if he truly multiplied five loaves and two fish? The point of it is that he had compassion on the crowds. And so what happened then was there was this dilution and distortion and reduction of Christianity down to mere activism. Now you might say, well, that's not me. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the miracles of Jesus. The social gospel is, not, is no danger to me. Thanks for warning us about it, Pastor. I mean, it's 100 years old. It's not really a live issue. Well, have you seen any movement lately in the church away from uh, doctrinal considerations towards ethical considerations and joining in solidarity with other supposed Christians based on ethical stance rather than doctrinal stance. Sadly, um, we're seeing it happen again. And it, it's now going, it's flying under the social justice rubric. And so what you're seeing is that the social justice folks are rallying together with other social justice folks without proper consideration to where the theological moorings are in many cases and what we're seeing is a similar kind of dilution and distortion and reduction of Christianity to mere activism I'm not saying that everybody that is on board with some of the social justice tenets are doing that but certainly some are and in fact a, a prominent pastor I won't call names because there's no point really but a prominent pastor in the U.S. recently said that he believes that black Christians need to stand in solidarity with other black people before they stand in solidarity with other Christians. Just consider the implications of that statement. There is a real danger of prioritizing activism 
above Christ Jesus himself, reducing the Christian life to an activism, helping make the socioeconomic situation better for this demographic or for that demographic becomes the overarching goal as opposed to devotion to Jesus. There are times where we do have to choose. But again, you might say, well, you know, I'm not into the whole social justice movement. I'm not woke. Again, that's not me. Now, what's, this is not a relevant, really relevant point for me. I appreciate the warning, but I would say that there are more subtle ways too that we can reduce the Christian life to mere activities. Is your Christian life, does your Christian life consist mostly of helping a brother or sister in need, going to church, doing charity work, or even evangelism, uh, doing stuff, mainly doing stuff, right? Hosting, visiting, helping, serving, evangelizing, you see? But do you linger in the Word of God? Do you love to read the Bible? Is God's law your delight? Is it sweeter to you than honey? Yeah, even much fine honey from the honeycomb. When was the last time that you told God in prayer, I love you? When was the last time you just prayed and said, God, I love you? I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you, Father. I love you, Holy Spirit. Is your Christianity reduced to doing stuff? There are times when we just need to for the moment, in that instance, to set aside devotion to the poor or devotion to other people or other tasks. There are times to just be devoted to Jesus. You need to have those times. You need to set aside those times. Where is your adoration? Would you say that you have a strong, vibrant prayer life with respect to the, that aspect of prayer, adoration? Yeah, yeah, maybe I need to ask God for more stuff, but at least I really pour out my heart in adoration to Him. Could you say that? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I do need to confess my sin more, but every morning, I just pour out my heart in adoration to the Lord. I love to lift him up. I love to exalt him. I love to delight in him. Yes, I, I do need to give thanks more. But man, I just, I just, I feel like I can't even get to it. I'm just so busy just adoring the Lord. Do you see? that there, there is a sense in which we can very, very quickly rush past devotion to Jesus just doing stuff, the duties of the Christian life, which would include, right, caring for the poor. Obviously, I've strayed a little further afield than simply finances here. 
but I've done so to try to illustrate the dynamic that Jesus is teaching us about here. Sure, there's a time and a place for doing stuff, including caring for the poor, all the things that the law requires, but there is a time and a place to take a $25,000 bottle of perfume and anoint Jesus' feet with it and wipe it with your hair. There's a time and a place for that too. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do you feel awkward when you see someone weeping in prayer? You ever been in a prayer meeting and someone starts praying and then they break down? Do you feel awkward about that? Or you're in church and you're you're singing and you look and you see someone weeping, moved. Do you feel awkward about that? The infrequency with which it happens probably ought to be an indictment of just how cold our hearts are toward the Lord Jesus. But also our responses when it does happen are likewise an indictment of how cold our hearts are toward the Lord Jesus. Why wouldn't wouldn't we find it normal? Why wouldn't we find it healthy to see that kind of thing happening in our churches? Do you feel awkward when you, perhaps you start praying and you start feeling yourself getting choked up and you think, I gotta stifle this. Why do you have to stifle it? Or you're singing and you feel overwhelmed with love for the Lord Jesus and you think, if I keep singing, my voice is going to crack. i got to stop singing so nobody knows. Why? Why? Are you too embarrassed to make a public show of affection for the Lord? I'm not talking about being like the Pharisees and practicing your righteousness before men in order that you might receive your reward in the here and now. But what this woman did in this passage was a somewhat awkward and somewhat embarrassing thing. Even the household servants apparently had different ranks and only the lowest of the low would even have to wash people's feet, even have to touch people's feet. And there, was, there were household servants that didn't even have to, like it was like considered below that. But she comes in and she takes this expensive thing The other Gospels tell us that she put it on Jesus' head. This one tells us that she put it on Jesus' feet. I don't know exactly how to describe what happened, but it seems that she came in, perhaps she poured some on his head, and there was some left, and she poured it on his feet, even trying to just honor just the most base part of who Jesus is. And it says that this fragrance filled the house. Verse 3. Which probably doesn't mean that it was like just a nice, pleasant aroma, but that it was like over the top. It was pungent. Right? It was really, really extreme. Like the kind of where people start like coughing and like, oh, I gotta get some fresh air. One, one commentator suggested it, it may even have been that that caused her to unbind her hair. Like she had nothing with 
you know, and here she is in this, like, maybe perhaps not even thought through display of affection for the Lord Jesus. Unbinding her hair would have, would have been, in that culture, kind of, kind of uncouth, like not really socially acceptable, not really convention, conventional. Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing. Would you have felt awkward about it if you were there? You're here having this conversation, maybe even having a debate about theology or doctrine or something. And here comes, here comes this woman and she just pours some perfume on the Lord Jesus. And it's like extreme and like distracting from the matters at hand. You know, and then here she is like weeping and wiping the Lord's feet with her hair. Would you think like we gotta get like look at this emotionalism? Would you scoff at it? Would you write this off as irrational, impractical Christianity? Oh, she must be from a different denomination. In Matthew 26 and verse 8. It says, it tells us that it wasn't just Judas alone who scoffed, but it was also the disciples. We know Judas had ulterior motives. He wanted to steal from the money bag. It wasn't the case. That wasn't the case with the other disciples, but yet still they scoffed. Why would we be like the scoffing disciples instead of being like the Lord Jesus who sees this and says, she's done a beautiful thing? Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. Ought we not to appreciate such raw honest outbursts of true informed emotion in view of who Jesus is? Are we not to applaud such things and embrace and encourage such things? Perhaps we ought to even seek to cultivate that kind of heart in ourselves that would be more open to having emotional experiences as we think on the Lord Jesus. Obviously, some people are going to be more emotional than others. Some less so. I don't think that it's necessarily better or worse if you're a more emotional person or less emotional person. But there's nothing wrong with emotion in principle. And I think the best way for us to think about it is like this. Within your personality type, you still get emotional about some things. <clears throat> Everyone does. So even if you're a pretty reserved guy, you still get emotional about something. The things that you should get most emotional about are the things concerning our triune God and His Son who came into the world and His covenant. If you find that you're, you're more moved 
by what happens in the cricket match or by a song that you hear on the radio or by a game of dominoes if these are the things that get you most animated perhaps there's something wrong within our own personality type as the Lord has formed us still the greatest inward movement and outward expression ought to be for the things of God and not just the doctrines about God when I say the things of God but Christ himself the person we ought not to be so rational and so practical that it would never cross our mind to open a $25,000 bottle of perfume and pour it on Jesus' feet if you're too rational to do that and too practical to do that there's something wrong with you there are times to take care of the poor there are times to do activism there are times to discuss doctrine and learn theology but there is a time and a place simply to be devoted to Jesus look on him think on him meditate on him hear him speaking to you in the pages of scripture my sheep hear my voice he said if you are his sheep that's you you ought to be hearing your savior's voice speaking to you in the pages of scripture you ought to be speaking to him also in prayer you ought to be engaged with him you ought to be worshipful you ought to be adoring <clears throat> There is a time and a place simply to be devoted to Jesus. And that's what Jesus says when he says, the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. Here in this passage, Jesus is affirming the kind of mentality that I heard recently. One mother said to her son, give me the flowers now while I'm still alive instead of placing them on my casket. Something like that is what Mary's doing. She's showing the honor now. She realizes the Passover lamb is about to be slaughtered. And she's showing the honor now. And Jesus is saying, this is fitting. This is a beautiful thing. She's giving me the flowers now, so to speak, instead of putting them on my casket. There is a time and a place to just open that bottle of perfume to give Jesus those flowers, to open whatever it is, that bottle of wine or a, a whiskey that you've been saving forever. There's a time and a place to just pull out all stops. Whatever it is in your personality type, in your way that you would do to celebrate, to honor, to revere, to adore. There's a time and place just to be with Jesus just to honor him, just to commune with him, just to show love to him. There is a time and a place for that. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage.